This is Bach Talk. What you're hearing is not Bach. In fact, it's music that was written nearly a hundred years before Johann Sebastian Bach was born. The composer? Well, we're not even absolutely certain of that. It's attributed to a William Tisdale from 16th century England. But it's the instrument and the artist who provide the most intrigue. Hello, I'm Ron Clem. Welcome to Bach Talk. This little pavan is being played on a remarkable 430-year-old keyboard instrument called the virginal. It's an instrument with an amazing story, and we'll hear more about it shortly. And it's being played by an even more amazing person. Dr. Charles Metz is both an optometrist and a qualified degreed expert in historical music performance. Never mind the fact that he's also a marvelous performer and a genuinely nice guy. Charlie is the man in the middle of the Bach Society Orchestra. From the harpsichord, he provides the center of the musical focus. From his pivotal position, the drama and excitement radiate. We sat down with Charlie not too long ago, and not long after he'd had some rather serious surgery on his vocal cords. But not to worry, he's back to normal. He was just a tad hoarse when we sat down for our little chat. Dennis Sparger, music director and conductor of the Bach Society, joined us in the beautiful mellow library at Ledoux Chapel. We wanted to learn more about Dr. Charles Metz, the man, his music, his dual paths in life, and his myriad of keyboard instruments. So, how did it all begin? I had two older sisters um, that both played the piano, and me, being the only boy and being very competitive, decided that I needed to do what they were doing and that I could do it better. <laughs> so I had this sort of uh, unfortunate uh, habit of finding out what their pieces were that they were to learn for their lesson and I would then learn the pieces because I was a fairly quick learner and then I'd say is this the piece you're supposed to play for your lesson this week <laughs> now how old are you I was about seven eight wow it's a Mozart <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. my mother thought I was a Mozart but sadly it was not quite the case <laughs> So those are my first memories. So, uh, you know, music became very, very important for me. And, and playing the piano was just a unique experience for me, something that came very naturally for me. And it always was a, a great pleasure for me. And um, I kept it all my life. And, and when did you decide, you know what, this is more than just fun. I could do this. Um, that's a hard question in a way. I, I always sort of thought that um, that it would be 
in a way, not my full passion, but definitely a full part of my life. Um, in fact, I started out in pre-med uh, in college. I did switch back into music and then um, finished a degree in music here at Washington University, uh, but then ended up being an optometrist for 20 years in such a way that I can now go back and enjoy music to the level that I want. So it's been a great, uh, great travel for me, and music has been a constant companion. So we can call you Dr. Dr. Charles Mouth. Uh, technically, that is correct. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the second doctor, which is the historical performance practice doctorate. That must be something that really uh, floated your boat at the time. Actually, it was my first doctorate. I did the music first ah. and then went into optometry um, as a means to an end, so to speak. Uh, but um, I had some friends. I was at Penn State University, and there was a group that I played with, and we were all doing early music with harpsichord. And uh, they had gotten scholarships to come to Washington University because at that point they had a program in what was called historical performance practice, which is based on understanding music as it was composed in the time and what the composers knew in terms of what they heard and the instruments that they had available. So it's all about reinterpreting music as it was as much as we can make happen heard by the composers of their day. And I resonated with that. I thought it was a very appropriate way to understand music and to perform music because it brings a, an, uh, an insight into it that isn't flavored by 19th century uh, stylistic changes. And that kind of brings me to the time when, when I met you. I, I calculated uh, earlier today how long we've known one another. Oh, and, and rather than mention, I'll just say it's from the last century. Okay, that's good <laughs> enough. And, and you came to join a group I was conducting at the time called the Masterworks Chorale, and you played in a madrigal feast. And, yep, yep. and of course, you had to put on tights and oh, ballet slippers well. and all of this. Uh, are there pictures? Did, you know, I, there, I think there are. How did you feel about doing something as unusual as that? I, I actually enjoyed it because actually it wasn't my first time. I, I had a gig one summer playing at Williamsburg, Virginia at the oh, Bush yeah. Gardens, huh? and I was playing at the Elizabethan uh, Globe. And so I was in tights and uh, um, with the whole uh, the whole garb and I had built a virginal and we would carry it out and play for 20 minutes and then would carry it back in again so so I was I was custom to uh, tights and in, uh, in uh, collars ruffle collars. oh well <laughs> what what fun yes. those days were Indeed. well you know when I started conducting the box society in 1986 you played in that first performance and the big piece on that program was Cantata 51 by Bach and Christine Brewer was the soloist. Yes, uh, we only known at that time. Had we only known at that time. <laughs> well, where, I think we did, actually. Where she would, and, of course, where all of us would have, have gone with our careers as well. Yeah. Uh, I've kind of wondered, in all of these years that you've played with us, has there been a, a, a favorite performance or a highlight that really sticks with you? Well, there have been a lot. I, I certainly enjoyed a lot of the uh, Handel oratorios that we did. Uh, but I have to say that going back to the Bach B minor always thrills me. Mm -hmm. And it, even the Messiah, you know, I have a love-hate with Messiah. 
I've, I think a lot of people do. I've heard it so many times yes. and I've played it so many times, but every time, and I go, I'm not again, but every time I'm playing it, it, it moves me and it, yes. it is quite thrilling. So it's, it's a great piece of music, it is, even it, if it is done you know, so many exactly. times. Yes, and I have speaks. to say that the Bach Society has given me some of the most beautiful highlights musically in my life. I remember just sitting in the orchestra and having chills uh, go down my spine because of the things that I heard and things that I was participating in. So I will always, always thank the Bach Society for those oh, opportunities. That's wonderful. We feel those things too. You mentioned uh, the word virginal, and uh, I want to make sure that people heard it right, but we're going to talk more about that and okay. about a lot of other keyboard instruments when we come right back. I'm with maestro Dennis Sparger, and our special guest today, Dr. Dr. Charles Metz. I'm Ron Clem, and this is Bach Talk. We're talking with Charlie Metz, who is, uh, do you say principal harpsichordist with the uh, Bach Society? Well, oh, he, we're going to call him that today. He is, he is the only harpsichordist. <laughs> <Right. laughs> you know, I think in all of these years that I've used someone else, I think maybe twice at the most when you were previously booked and yeah. we, we yeah. couldn't get you. I think that yeah. qualifies then. Yes, yeah. um, I guess not all harpsichords are created equal. That is, uh, that is quite correct. Right? So, so, so go ahead and play the uh, historical performance card here and help us understand what some of these instruments are like. One of the things that I find fascinating about this world of keyboards in the 18th century is it wasn't uniform. There wasn't just one harpsichord. Um, like we have one modern piano now that everyone's used to and you see it and you hear it and you know it. Back in the day, there were Flemish harpsichords, French harpsichords, German harpsichords, Italian harpsichords, and they all were slightly different in terms of their construction, the woods that they used, even the keyboards were a little bit different uh, styles and different sizes. And they also matched the music of that country and exploited the elements of, say, Italian music, which have much more pungent kind of uh, speaking, where the French harpsichord is much silkier and smoother in its sound, which sort of uh, reflects the, 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 the suave nature of, of the high French society. You've got a couple of instruments here we want to play some examples of. Tell us about these Flemish instruments now. Flemish harpsichords, um, there was one particular family called the Rookers family, uh, which was a, a multi-generational family um, from father uh, to son to grandson. And they were building harpsichords at the highest level um, in Antwerp. And um, they were considered, today, they are considered, considered the Stradivarius of the uh, harpsichord world. These were highly prized instruments. In fact, they were used uh, 100 years later to to be uh, rebuilt and um, what's called ravelment, where they made them larger so they would have uh, expanse so they could play the later repertoire. But this sound w was, was the true um, sound of a harpsichord and it's never really changed. And, and so the Flemish harpsichord is, to me, one of the truest and most pure harpsichord sounds. Sounds like the gold standard. Absolutely, yeah. and it still is today. A lot of the bakers who still make harpsichords often still uh, copy mm -hmm. Rooker's instruments. 
So let's, can we listen to a little Bach from this uh, 17th century Flemish sure. instrument? Sure. I, I have a particular instrument that sits at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. The instrument at the Met does not play, uh, but I had a, a builder friend, uh, Walter Burr, who made a copy of it. It took him five years to do this copy, uh, but it is a really excellent uh, reproduction of this particular instrument, um, as it would have been built in, in about 1650. And here's a little bit of uh, music on that harpsichord from uh, one of Bach's French suites. We're talking with Charlie Metz, our harpsichordist with the Bach Society of St. Louis, Dennis Sparger, our music director alongside. Um, tell us a little bit more, Charlie, about these, these, uh, these instruments, or, or let's, let's pick it up from that 17th century Flemish instrument. What came next? Well, we can even go behind a little bit or before. I, I do have an original 400-year-old Italian virginal wow. that I actually found in Fairview Heights, uh, a neighborhood of St. Louis, uh, about um, 10 years ago. And uh, no, actually a little bit longer. But it was being sold as a piece of painted furniture. I was able to get it, get it restored. And it turns out it's one of 18 in the world by this particular maker who died in Florence, Italy in 1634. Uh, we believe this instrument I have was probably built it around 1590. So it's a late Renaissance, early early Baroque instrument, and um, they were very much favored during the Elizabethan times. In fact, Queen Elizabeth had an Italian virginal very similar to this. And um, so I'm very happy to have this instrument. I have played it around the country. I have played it at the Smithsonian. And I've recently, about two years ago, did a CD on it as well. Wow. Which is available on Apple Music and Spotify and all the rest of it. Very, very good. What's the title of it? It's called Teasdale Virginal Music. Wonderful. We will look yeah. that up. Yeah. I can only imagine the, uh, the word fragility comes to mind. You play on this instrument and I don't, wouldn't want to get near it. I'm afraid I'd you know, spill something on it. Well, of course there is that, but it has survived 400 years, so it's a pretty tough little cookie. It's, uh, it's gone through a lot and still come out just fine on the other side. So, yeah, a lot of people think that harpsichords are, are terribly fragile. And, of course, there is there's a certain nature that is, uh, could be destroyed, I suppose, if something terrible happened to it. But, uh, but they are actually a well-balanced and well-built instrument that uh, can stand quite a lot. When people if people talk about piano, they know that you press the key and a hammer is activated and hits a string. The sound is made differently with a harpsichord. So, first of all, explain how a harpsichord is sounded. Well, very simply, um, the harpsichord mechanism was around for about 300 years. 
And it is a simple jack or a, a piece of wood that out of the top is a, a plectra, uh, which comes up and actually plucks the string on the way up, and then is cut in such a way that it'll swivel past the string on the way down, and then a piece of felt will dampen the string. So we have no pedals like you have on a, on a, a piano. There's no ability to make it ring longer except to hold it with your fingers. So it's a very simple plucking mechanism, and because of that, there are no dynamics, no matter how how hard you hit the key, it's always the same loudness. So just like an organ, you have different stops, you have different colors that you can use, but all the um, expression is done through what are called agogic accents, slightly little rhythmic um, accents, and also through what's called articulation. If you put a space before a note, the ear perceives that that note is being louder. And so it's a very subtle way of being able mm -hmm. to create phrasing and create uh, tension within a line of music by uh, by these what are called articulations. Yeah, well, I've noticed in the past that sometimes you play more notes to get more sound or fewer notes to be softer. We've had you, you know, a few times as a soloist. Uh, a few years ago, we did Box Brandenburg Five, and we're doing that again uh, this coming spring along with a harpsichord concerto by Bach. Uh, but most often you're playing continuo with us. And while musicians tend to understand what that word means, um, a general audience may not. They may see it listed in the program, continuo and two, three, four names listed, but what is that? Yes, a great question, and a lot of people don't know. Uh, and this is one of the other things that drew me to the harpsichord, because I'm not just playing notes that are written out on a page for me. Continuo, in a way, is a very early um, cheat sheet or jazz um, kind of ability to, to play whatever you feel like, however you want to make the sound fuller, less full. And basically what they did is they had a number system that would go underneath the what's called the bass line, and that number system will tell you what harmony to play, and that's all I've got. So you learn those numbers, you learn the harmonies, and um, then from there you make up the music as you go. And I think that's the thrilling part of playing continuo. Yes, and I think you have to like create melody on top of that, like to be like a counter melody to whatever else is going on. Exactly, and that was all part of the teaching back in the 18th century. They didn't teach people just to to read music and play. They taught them how to compose. Mm -hmm. and and that was part of it. And Bach did that with his students, of course. And so, yes, uh, reading the figure bass was step one, and then adding melodic and, and um, elaborations on the melody was step two, and composing is step three. So essentially, you're looking at one staff with the bass part and with the numbers or figures underneath, hence the name the figured bass, yep. and then you create the top. If you're lucky, you may get another staff that shows you like what a singer is doing, uh, especially if you're accompanying recitative, so you have an idea of where to place the harmonies. Do you change the, the information, you know, like the realization of the chords or the voicing of them or the melodic part? Do you change that every time you play? Yes, I do actually, yeah. and I find it actually difficult to sit and practice continuo by myself. <laughs> I'll bet. I, I really only can do it when I'm playing with somebody because yeah. then I can bounce off of them and I can respond and that's what continuo Well, you can sing about. and play at the same time. <laughs> Not these days. <laughs> Not, <laughs> Not well, today. Not anyway. today. Yeah. Um, speaking of the 18th century, you also have or play often a, uh, is it your instrument, a, fr a French 18th century instrument? I do. It was one of my first harpsichords. Okay. Tell us about that. 
Um, I met this harpsichord builder in upstate New York by the name of Walter Burr, um, and he had studied with some of the famous makers in Boston, and he was making historical copies, uh, okay. uh, you know, 30 years ago, and he copied an instrument that's at the um, Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. It was a French instrument that was made in, in um, 1760, and uh, it's a Stellan instrument, and it's a double manual, um, and uh, covers all the repertoire of the 18th century, and it's still I still have the instrument and it's still a favorite of mine but compared to the instrument we heard a little bit earlier what's the difference it, the stringing is slightly different um, the scale length is different where the plectra plucks the string is slightly different all which creates a slightly different sound and it'll be more mellow and um, a little bit more it's warmer um, it, yes yeah. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah it I, is in many ways. Let's hear a little Bach uh, played on that uh, 18th century French harpsichord. Played on the harpsichord by our special guest, Charlie Metz, who is principal harpsichordist with the Bach Society of St. Louis. We're here with Dennis Sparger. It's it's exciting to talk about these things, but I just wonder um, if, if people really understand that you're right in the middle of everything. That must be a special spot. Well, of course it is. And, and back in the old days, we didn't have to conductors very often in the in the Baroque time. And it was the uh, harpsichordist's job to, to lead uh, the orchestra or sometimes the first violinist. But uh, you're absolutely right. The harpsichord is in the middle of it. And the other aspect of a harpsichord and why it was so popular within a group is that it functions in two ways. One is because the pluck of the harpsichord is so precise that it, it allows the orchestral members to hear the the beat. So it's very mm -hmm. important for the harpsichordist to keep the beat and to keep the tempo steady or whatever it's doing so that they can hear it. So there's a the element of the harpsichord is an ensemble thing that, that keeps the uh, the group together. Sounds like in, in other types of music it would be the drummer given the beat. In a way you're absolutely right. We're talking to Charlie Metz, our harpsichordist, and uh, you have a kind of a, a I don't want to say dual citizenship, but <laughs> you've, you've spent an awful lot of time here in St. Louis, but now you're, you're kind of spending time in the West uh, these days a little bit. Tell us more about that. Well, again, my life is uh, is directed by my musical pursuits. Um, I was in St. Louis for many, many years. 
Um, and then I branched out to Chicago and worked with various groups up there. And um, now I, I've pulled out of Chicago completely. I did a lot of work in um, Kansas City as well. And I've, I've gone to California and recently rented a house. I'm living in Palm Springs, but uh, rented a house in downtown L.A. once again to expand my musical context. Um, and um, I'm having a great time doing it. I, you know, music drives me every day. I wake up thinking about it and what I can do with it. Do you always have a, a performance to look forward to in, in the near future? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Certainly before COVID, I was doing a performance nearly every two weeks mm. somewhere. Uh, everything quieted down, of course, during COVID. And I, I kind of liked that, actually. It was kind of fun. <laughs> so I'm not doing as much as I did. But uh, no, I'm still, uh, I'm still driven by performance. I still love doing it. I still love getting in front of the audience. And it, it, uh, it, it gives me a lot of inspiration. I think I know the answer, but I'm asking it anyway. You don't need to be coming back to St. Louis all the time and performing with the Box Society, yet you do it. Well, of course I do it because I've been doing this for a long time. It's tradition, you know, and I have friends here. And, and the Box Society is a very good musical group. And, you know, I'll play with any group that's a high level. And uh, Box Society certainly is that. So, uh, yeah, I will, I will do it as long as they ask me. Ah, you're very kind. I, I, this is a little bit off the topic of harpsichord, but still within the realm of keyboard. You know, I still remember when you, when you brought to town your forte piano, and played at the home of Tad and Catherine Edwards. So we're in a, a very, very large living room, but hearing that instrument, and uh, I, I'll never forget your playing Beethoven's Fur Elise, a piece that somewhat is boring because, you know, children work on this, and yet to hear this played on the forte piano was just a revelation. It it just was amazing, uh, such an experience. And I know you're doing other music uh, on the fortepiano as well. Yes, thanks, Dennis. I appreciate that comment. Uh, and that goes drives home my whole idea of historical performance practice. You, when you play music on an instrument that it was written for, sometimes you can get an insight that you didn't have before. Mm -hmm. And the forte piano is a much lighter sound, much uh, more transparent. And the forte piano I have has some extra sort of stops. There's what's called a moderator, which puts felt between the hammer and the strings, so it creates this muted sound. And uh, I use that on that that piece mm. and it, it creates another whole world of sound that they were very familiar with remember the piano just didn't get invented one day the yeah. harpsichord was dying out the piano was being invented and the early pianos had many different stops just like the harpsichord did so it was a transition through those instruments until we get to the modern piano that basically has an unicorda which doesn't change much and a damper pedal and that's all there is there's no other ways to change the sound mm -hmm. these early instruments had many ways of changing the sound. and beethoven and they clement knew they, 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 they knew, knew this them. yeah yes yeah pretty amazing now we've, we've read that bach was not too impressed with the forte piano but i think that was rather earlier in his life and he may have changed his opinion yeah. by the time he came to the end. Exactly right. He actually, um, there's been more research recently, and, and he actually became a salesman for, or at least spoke well for a certain piano uh, builder at the time. Um, the early instruments he played were not good mechanically, mm -hmm. and I think that was his issue. But as they got better, he, he really um, grew to like it. Yeah. And certainly his son, C.P.E. Bach, yes. uh, oh, yeah. certainly took it. Do you think you're ready to take up the accordion? <laughs> well, maybe someday. I've got one I can sell you. Yes. <laughs> and I know a great teacher. Yes. What gives you the greatest joy? Um, 
I hesitate, but I have to say that some of the greatest joys, not just performing, but it's actually practicing. I, there's nothing more beautiful than getting up in the morning and then walking over the harpsichord and sitting down and playing a prelude and fugue from book one of Well-Tempered Clavier of Bach. It just, it starts my day. And it, it, there's something so, so magical and so, so life-affirming for me mm -hmm. um, and uh, Bach comes into that a lot but uh, just playing the instrument and practicing and now with these other pianos I have a square piano now and I'm recently getting a later 1838 piano a copy that's being built for me uh, you know all these different sounds just um, continue to inspire me if, if for some reason the music was taken away or or if there wasn't an opportunity to play what else? What would you do? What, what other passions do you have? Well, I, I have thought about that, and I don't like to think about that because no. I would think in some ways my life was over um, because it, that's how much music means to me. But I suppose um, I have a, a friend um, that was a very accomplished uh, pianist, uh, studied at Juilliard, etc. Um, and then he had a massive stroke about uh, four years ago, and he lost all control of his uh, right side. But um, he was very much depressed, um, but he is now playing the piano and performing with his left hand alone um, and doing an amazing job. So he's an inspiration for me. So And he's also teaching. And I think if, if something happened to me that I couldn't play, um, I think teaching would be something that I would, would gravitate towards. Well, thanks for spending time with us. Pleasure. That's Charles Metz. Along with Dennis Barger, I'm Ron Clem. And this is Bach Talk. Final moments of the first movement from Bach's Brandenburg Concerto No. 5 from a concert in the 2022 Bach Festival in St. Louis. The Bach Society Orchestra was conducted by Dennis Sparger, the harpsichordist, our very special guest today, Dr. Charles Metz. Be sure to check out Charlie's recording on that circa 1590 virginal we talked about earlier. It's called William Tisdale Music for Virginal, on Navona Records, available wherever you get your music. And watch for the release of his latest project, a collection of Scarlatti sonatas, played on a period square forte piano. Yet another example of the fascinating world of musical discovery that is Dr. Charles Metz.
Subscribe to Bach Talk wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more at BachSociety.org. Bach Talk is a trademark of the Bach Society of St. Louis. I'm Ron Clem.